Thank you so much, Hannah. It's good to see you. I'm going to see your dad tomorrow in Delaware. He's a pastor there in Delaware, and I think your mom is going to be visiting us this morning too, so great to have your family here. For those of you who don't know, Hannah's the granddaughter of Dick and Judy Russell, so that's another connection to our church, and it's just good to see you this morning, church family. In case you're staring at me wondering what happened to my nose, you're worried about what what might be going on at home or something like that. I've already had a couple people ask me, let me just clear the air. I had an unfortunate encounter with the pavement uh, the other night while running, and I'm, I'm fine. My first concern picking myself up was, did any of you see it happen? <laughs> I, I don't think you did, and uh, so all is well. Uh, we're going to turn to 1 Samuel 29 this morning. We're coming to the end of this book of 1 Samuel, and remember that uh, first and Second Samuel are really one book in two volumes, so we're going to return to Second Samuel in the fall. But next week, for July and August, we're going to start a small summer series called The Upside Down Kingdom, and we're going to be looking to the Holy Spirit to form the character of Christ in us as we work our way through the Beatitudes of Jesus in Matthew 5, uh, verses 1 through 12. And I've already put it on my daily list of reminders to read through and pray through the Beatitudes starting every day from today through Labor Day. And I want to invite you to join me in that rhythm of grace. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we as a church were intentionally reading through and praying through that short but very, very pregnant passage every day over the next couple of months? What, what changes would happen in our lives? How would we be formed more into the character of Christ as we did that together? But today, one last sermon in 1 Samuel, and I want to begin with a little riddle. What can turn a lump of coal into a flawless diamond, and what can turn an average person into an absolute basket case? The answer is pressure. Pressure can turn a lump of coal into a flawless diamond, and pressure can turn an average person into an absolute basket case. It has well been said that a person's true character is often most evident when that person is under pressure. And what you do and how you respond when you're under pressure is likely going to be the result of the cultivation of a lifelong of daily habits and practices. In these final chapters of 1 Samuel, the action keeps moving back and forth between two main characters, two men, both of whom are under tremendous pressure. There's King Saul and there's David, the man who's been set apart by God to be the next king of Israel. And we've been watching King Saul crumble under pressure since chapter 13, where we left off last week, Saul was at rock bottom. Where did he turn to find relief from the pressure he was facing? He turned to a witch, a medium in Endor. And what was the message he received? It was the confirmation of the word of God that had been spoken to him through the prophet Samuel long ago that the kingdom 
was being torn from him and would be given to another. And now Saul knew that his doom was sure, for he learned that night that the very next day his life would be taken in battle. Where you turn for strength under pressure is a great revealer of the content of your character. It's the product of a lifetime of habits. Saul has cultivated the habit of glancing at God and gazing at his circumstances. He's preoccupied with paranoia and fear, obsessed with his own image, drunk on his own power, and now he is literally scared to death. Meanwhile, while all this has been happening with Saul and the witch at Endor, David has been under a tremendous weight of pressure himself, and some of it is a pressure of his own making. It started back in chapter 27 when David said to himself, one of these days I'll be swept away by Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape immediately to the land of the Philistines, Then Saul will give up searching for me everywhere in Israel, and I'll escape from him. So David set out with his 600 men and went over to Achish, son of Maok, the king of Gath, one of the Philistine territories. This was not David's strongest moment. The unrelenting pressure of Saul's murderous rage is wearing David down, And he concludes, the only place I'm going to be safe is behind enemy lines. So he plants himself covertly among the Philistines for one year and four months, all the while giving the impression to their king that he is loyal to them. So Achish is pleased, not realizing he's been deceived. He sees David as a defector. And clearly, this, this situation cannot go on forever. But David, David is able to keep up the ruse until chapter 29. Now, when we come to chapter 29, we need to realize that this takes place chronologically a few days earlier from Saul's encounter with the witch at Endor in chapter 28. It's like we're going back and forth, seeing what's going on in each of these men's lives. And we have a change of scene here in in, in chapter 29 to show us what was happening in David's life while everything was coming to a screeching disaster in Saul's life. And from these chapters that we're going to look at this morning, we're going to see three lessons about finding strength under pressure. Here's the first way believers can find strength when we're under pressure. Remember that God will provide a way out. We see that in chapter 29. Let's pick up the narrative at verses 1 through 5 of 1 Samuel 29. It says, the Philistines brought, or as the ESV has it, the Philistines had gathered. This is already taking place taking place all their military units together at Aphek, while Israel was camped by the spring in Jezreel. As the Philistine leaders were passing in review with their units of hundreds and thousands, David and his men were passing in review behind them with Achish. Now just make sure you're, you're, you're getting the scene right here. The Philistines are assembling for the battle that's going to result in massive bloodshed for Israel. 
And David and his men are marching with the Philistines into the conflict against Israel. How's he going to get out of this mess? Then the Philistine commanders asked, what are these Hebrews doing here? Achish answered the Philistine commanders, that is David, servant of King Saul of Israel. He has been with me a considerable period of time. From the day he defected until today, I found no fault with him. The Philistine commanders, however, were enraged with Achish and told him, send that man back and let him return to the place you assigned him. He must not go down with us into battle only to become our adversary during the battle. What better way could he ingratiate himself with his master than with the heads of our men? Isn't this the David they sang about during their dances? Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands? You see, the, the commanders of the military are proving to be more shrewd and wise than their king in this moment. They know that David has become a household name because of his bold defeat of Goliath of the Philistines. And they know that there's no way they're going to trust David to be fighting on their side now. And their suspiciousness of David becomes God's means of deliverance for David. After all, David has got himself into a great pickle here. If David tries to escape from the Philistines, he's in danger of being exposed as a spy. The whole ruse that he's been doing is going to be revealed to be a, a great deception. He could lose his life. But if he remains with them, he's marching straight into battle against the people over whom God has anointed him to be king. And that's an untenable position. It, it, it looks like David is stuck. And it doesn't seem, if you read chapter 29, like God has been doing much in David's life over this past year and four months when David's been covert behind enemy lines. In fact, the name of Yahweh, the Lord, is only mentioned once in chapter 29. And, and the time we hear it, it's on the lips of the Philistine king Achish in verse 6. Let's Continue reading. So Achish summoned David and told him, As the Lord, as Yahweh lives, you are an honorable man. I think it is good to have you fighting in this unit with me because I have found no fault in you from the day you came to me until today. But the leaders don't think you're reliable. Now go back quietly and you won't be doing anything the Philistine leaders think is wrong. This is David's way of escape. <laughs> but David kind of keeps up the ruse. But what have I done, David replied to Achish, from the first day I entered your service until today? What have you found against your servant to keep me from going to fight against the enemies of my lord the king? Now note, what Achish thinks David means is not actually what David is saying. When David speaks of my lord the king, he's not talking about Achish. But Achish thinks he's talking about Achish. David is concealing from Achish what's really been going on. Achish answered David, I'm convinced that you are as reliable as an angel of God. But the Philistine commanders have said he must not go into battle with us. So get up early in the morning, you and your master's servants who came with you. When you've, gotten up, when you've all gotten up early, go as soon as it's light. 
So David and his men got up early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. What does the Holy Spirit want us to see in this chapter? This is not just some kind of archaic piece of ancient history. Through this narrative, the Holy Spirit is showing us how God provided a way of escape for his servant when he was hemmed in under pressure. And even though David got himself into this real mess through his own lapse of faith and fear, God continued to be merciful and watchful over his servant. And I'm sure there is someone in our church today, or maybe many of us today, who need to be reminded of how gentle and kind and merciful our God is with us, even when we've made a real mess of things. Because of our foolishness, our fear, our lack of faith, we're in hot water. But God provides a way of escape. David got himself stuck in this hard spot. And I can imagine his anxiety levels going through the roof when he's marching out to battle against his own people. He knows there's no way he's going to fight against Israel. No way. He is faithful and loyal to Saul and to his people all the while. But how is he going to escape from this dilemma now? Well, God was at work through all of this. Even though his presence seems unseen and his voice is silent, God's been at work protecting David's life, protecting David's integrity to be the king of his people. And just in the nick of of time, God puts it into the minds of some Philistine commanders to say, wait a minute, who is this guy? Who are these Hebrews? What are you doing, Achish? Why are you letting them fight with us? They need to go. And then God uses a Philistine king, Achish, to affirm David's innocence, just as God used a Roman Pontius Pilate to affirm the innocence of a much greater son of David when he stands trial before his accusers hundreds of years later. We have here an illustration of a truth that we need to turn to again and again, to find strength when we are under pressure. It's that wonderful truth that is stated so clearly in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. Let's just read this verse together aloud. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able But with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. Remember that when the pressure in your life is intense. You are not doomed to live like a Philistine. God will provide a way out so that you can honor him and remain faithful to him. God is committed to protecting you, his people, from spiritual treason. That's the main thing God's concerned about is your faithfulness to him. God is committed to upholding your loyalty to him and to his church above all else. And even when you cannot stand up any longer and you feel like your strength is spent, wait for it. God will provide a way of escape. 
You are not a victim of your circumstances. You are not a victim of your own mistakes. Every believer falters. Every believer has his fainting fits. Every believer fails from time to time and does foolish things. But our fainting fits and our follies do not forfeit God's faithfulness to us. He is pursuing us with his goodness and his mercy all the days of our lives. Recently, our elder team did one of these assessments to find out more about ourselves. You know, what makes us tick? What are we strong in and what are we weak in? How can we partner together better? And we, we did this assessment called the working genius assessment. And, and, and the, the thesis behind it is that God has given to everyone certain talents, certain gifts, that when you're operating in that sweet spot, you're going to really thrive. You're really going to flourish and feel joy. And in the test, it, there, there were no surprises for me. One of the things I, I discovered is that I really enjoy enablement of others. I, I, I derive energy from building others up and encouraging them and assisting them so that they can grow and accomplish what God has made them to be and do. I love that. I also love discernment, using my intuition and instincts to evaluate and assess ideas and plans. Those, they said, are some of my working geniuses. But along with the geniuses, we also have areas of frustration where we're not as strong, and we need other people to come in and fill those gaps. And one of my areas of frustration is tenacity. I do not actually enjoy having to push projects through to completion. That's not fun for me. And why do I tell you this? I tell you this because God does not share my frustration. God is a genius when it comes to tenacity. It's one of his working geniuses. He will not give up on us even when we're bumbling and stumbling our way into trouble. God is not short-tempered with us. His mercy is tenacious. It will not let go. I mean, can you think of a time in your life when you were sure you could handle something? You made a decision, went in a direction that ended up being a disaster. You remember a time like that? Maybe you were afraid then that God was finished with you. But you've discovered that your foolishness did not exhaust his mercy. His mercy is more. Even when you were faithless, he remained faithful because you belong to him and he cannot deny himself. That's the good news of this chapter for every believer. When you feel that your strength is spent, when the pressure seems beyond what you can bear, hold on to this. God will provide a way out. Even if you got yourself into it, he's committed to getting you out of it if you will look to him. His goodness is running after you all the days of your life. And one day, everything that's been sad and perplexing and messed up is going to be swallowed up by his goodness and mercy, and you're going to dwell in his house forever. So believe that no matter how intense the test is that you're facing, God is committed to providing a way out. And we learn that in chapter 29. But in chapter 30, we see that sometimes... The pursuit of God's goodness in our lives might feel 
like we're being thrown from the frying pan into the fire. That brings us to the second lesson about finding strength. This is so important, friends. Even when all other helpers fail, there is a source you can always avail. We see this in chapter 30. The scene in verses 1 through 6 is distressing to read. David and his men arrived in Ziklag. Remember, this is the town in Philistine territory that Achish had ceded to David earlier. They arrived in Ziklag on the third day. They've been sent away from the Philistine army. Now they're in Ziklag. And when they get there, they discover that those ancient enemies of Israel, the Amalekites, whom Saul had failed to destroy, had raided the Negev and attacked and burned Ziklag. They also had kidnapped the, young, the women and everyone in it from youngest to oldest. They had killed no one but carried them off as they went on their way. you got to imagine like the Fox Valley being invaded by an enemy and Everything you know destroyed and your family kidnapped. How distressing. When David and his men arrived at that town, they found it burned. Their wives, sons, and daughters had been kidnapped. Listen to this phrase. David and the troops with him wept loudly until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelite, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, had also been kidnapped. David was in an extremely difficult position because the troops talked about stoning him. For they were all very bitter over the loss of their sons and daughters. Moses faced something very similar before he went into a war, a battle that brought victory over Amalekites. So just let this sink in. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you wept so loudly? Finally, you had no strength left to weep. It's pretty low. David and his men are at at their wit's end. They're at rock bottom. And that happens sometimes in our Christian lives. We we face a trial, a difficulty, and we're at the point where I think we we think this has got to be the worst. It can't get any worse than this. And then the bottom drops out even more. And it does get worse. In Psalm 30, David wrote, Weeping may stay for the night, but joy comes in the morning. But then sometimes weeping returns in the afternoon. And David's experiencing that right now. It gets even worse. Understand this, brothers and sisters. God's faithfulness does not obligate him to make our lives easier. God does not promise to relieve our trials the way we want him to. God is not bound by our deadlines. God isn't even required to keep the people we depend on the most near to us so that we can experience their help. And some people cannot handle believing in a God like that. 
Many years ago, I, I, I witnessed the conversion of a man to Jesus Christ that was really beautiful in its beginnings. Watched him be baptized and saw him start to grow. But then his wife got really sick. And when that happened, that rattled this man's faith so deeply that he said, I can no longer trust in God or follow Christ. And even though his wife got better, he decided he could not believe in or follow a God who might be willing to take his wife from him. It makes me wonder, is your faith, is my faith really in God or in the people around me? Do I find my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth? Or is my real stay, my real source of strength, the people in my life on whom I've learned to rely? In David's case, that's all evaporated. These people around him are ready to stone him. He has no human help to turn to. Look at the end of verse 6. This is the key phrase of the whole sermon. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Can you just underline that and dwell on that and meditate on that this week? But David found strength in the Lord his God. How did he do it? Well, back in chapter 23, we get a hint. When David was in the desert, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And in verse 16, we read that Saul's son Jonathan went to David and helped him to find strength in God. Literally, he strengthened his hand in God. How did Jonathan strengthen David's hand in God? How did he help him find strength? He reminded David of God's promise. This is 1 Samuel 23, verse 17. Don't be afraid, Jonathan said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You shall be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. So David has learned through all this pressure and all these trials that there is a source of secret strength on whom he can always rely and to whom he can always return. This God has made a promise that he will not turn back from. And when David reminds himself of the promise of God, he is strengthened in his inner being. So David goes to God. He admits that he needs help. He remembers the promises God has made to deliver him from his enemies and to place him on his throne. He cries out to God in distress. We see him doing this over and over again in the Psalms, like Psalm 34, where he says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. This poor man cried, and the Lord helped him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. And notice that it says in verse 6 of, of chapter 30 that David found strength in the Lord, his God. Not just the Lord God. Not just 
a generic God, but a personal covenantal relationship that David is in. As one old writer put it, David could no longer say my house or my city or my possessions, but he could say my God. He found strength in the Lord, his God. And as he strengthened his heart in his God, he sought the Lord's guidance and wisdom through the means that God had provided in verses 7 and 8. And he got the Lord's guidance to go out and pursue the Amalekites and finish the job Saul had failed to do back in chapter 15. Now ponder this for a moment. Have you learned to find your strength in your personal relationship with God, even when everyone around you is unavailable or unwilling or unable to help. David doesn't have any wives he can turn to. He doesn't have any friend he can lean on. Even the soldiers who should be protecting him are ready to kill him. But he's able to find his strength in the Lord, his God, and in that strength, he will go forth victoriously. Have you learned how to do that? One of the godliest women Kate and I know is probably the person in our lives who has suffered more intensely than anyone I know. Many years ago when she was young, As a wife and a mother, her husband, who was a pastor, had a terrible accident that resulted in one of his legs having to be amputated. And in the aftermath of that disaster and with all the things medication can do to our minds, he found himself in such a deep depression that he ended up taking his own life. During that time, she had three children, young, two of whom were facing serious disabilities. One of her children had to be cared for by a relative because the pressure of all of it was overwhelming. Eventually, she remarried. That marriage became a nightmare of betrayal and abuse. She lost another son in a tragic death. There have been many who haven't known what to say or how to help our friend, and they've kind of kept at a distance. She has experienced sorrows like sea billows rolling over her again and again. But the depth of her dependence on God the richness of her communion with him in his word and in prayer, the vibrancy of her praise and her thanksgiving, the vitality of her hope in Jesus is palpable. Every time we spend with her, we walk away with a greater confidence that his oath, his covenant, his blood will support us in the whelming flood. And when all around our soul gives way, he then will be our hope. And our stay, we can trust in Christ, our solid rock. This dear sister is a living testimony to us that it is possible to find our strength in the Lord, our God, even when every human help flees. So pay attention, church. 
We've been reading a book as a staff about the, the habits that produce change over our lives. And, and one of the things it says is pay attention to this acronym, HALT, H-A-L-T. Pay attention to when you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Because that's when you're most vulnerable to find your strength somewhere outside of God. What if every time we were hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, instead of immediately picking up the phone or sending a text or going onto social media or turning to Netflix, what if we made it our habit to turn to the Lord and to find our strength in him? Yes, he might send us a friend or direct us to seek help from someone else But what if our first instinct was not to look for human help, but to seek the Lord and his strength and to seek his presence continually? How much stronger would we be as a church and as individuals if that became our instinct, the the true north of our souls, to go immediately to our God? In David's life, the strength he found in his God enabled him to press on through adversity and ascend to the throne as a humble king who never forgot that God was gracious to him, a king whose spirit was remarkably different from his predecessor. Let me just summarize what happens in the rest of the story in chapter 30. 400 of David's men go with him into battle. 200 are too exhausted to fight, and so they stay behind and guard the goods. On their way into battle, they meet an Egyptian who turns out to have been a slave of an Amalekite, and this Egyptian slave provides the intelligence David and his men need to find the Amalekites at their most vulnerable position. This is a gift of God's providence. They go, they raid the Amalekites, they're victorious, and verses 18 through 20 emphasize how everything the Amalekites had taken including their wives and children and plunder, was now restored to David. Nothing was missing. David brought everything back. It was a tremendous victory. And the men who fought with David wanted to make sure that no one of those 200 men who stayed behind would get any share in the spoils of the victory. Look at verse 22. But all the corrupt and worthless men among those who had gone with David argued Because they didn't go with us, we will not give any of the plunder we recover to them except for each man's wife and children. They may take them and go. And David's reply to these selfish, troublesome, corrupt men shows what kind of king he's going to be. Look at verse 23. No, my brothers. Notice he didn't say, no, you scoundrels. No, you troublemakers, you rascals, you worthless men. No, my brothers. Here is a humble king being exalted who's not ashamed to call the scoundrels my brothers. He appeals to them. He reminds them that it was the Lord who had given them the victory. The Lord was the one who protected us. The Lord delivered us. And he establishes a principle that became a perpetual statute and ordinance in Israel. Look at verse 24. Who can agree to your proposal? 
Here's, here's the ordinance. The share of the one who goes into battle is to be the same as the share of the one who remains with the supplies. They will all share equally. Because David understands the grace of God. It's not just those who work through the heat of the day that get the reward. It's those who came in at the 11th hour. Because in the end, everything, what do we have that we have not received? In the end, it's all a gift of grace. And because David is overwhelmed at the grace that God has shown him, he proceeds to share with all the elders of Judah and all the people the spoils of victory because he knew it all came from the Lord. What a different kind of king this is going to be. What did Samuel warn the people when they demanded a king like all the other nations? What did he say that king would do? Samuel said he's going to take, 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 and that's what he's done. Saul has just, he, he's, he's eviscerated Israel of all their strength. But now we find a king who gives, 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 gives. And he's pointing us forward to a greater king who gave himself for his church. And in his death on a cross, he bound the strong man and plundered the house of the strong man. And we're part of his plunder. We're the ones Jesus has set free from the dominion of sin and Satan. And now Jesus gives us the glorious freedom of the children of God. And he bestows upon us grace upon grace. For every grace he gives, it makes room for more grace to be given. And he lavishes on us the greatest gift of all, the Holy Spirit. In all that comes with him, the gifts of the Spirit on his blood-bought church. Friends, we can always run to Jesus in our time of need. We can find grace and mercy when other helpers fail and comforts flee. Jesus is the help of the helpless. And we can always say to him, abide with me. There's one more thing we need to learn before we close this book, and I'm going to just be so brief because it's going to pick up again at the beginning of 2 Samuel. But it's just this. Be sure that trusting in your own strength always has a tragic end. Saul has cultivated through his lifetime habits of diminishing God and magnifying his circumstances and his fears. And in the process, he has been emptied of his strength, just like Hannah prayed at the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 2. What did she say there? The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. That's what she said at the beginning of this book. And we've seen that played out throughout this whole narrative, throughout this whole book. When we were introduced to Saul back in chapter 9, verse 2, we were told that he stood a head taller than anyone else. He was above them all. But in this last chapter, he's going to be brought low, and his fall is going to be complete. Let's just read it together, and then we will close. The Philistines fought against Israel, and Israel's men fled from them and were killed on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pursued Saul and his sons and killed his sons, Jonathan, that dear and beloved man, Abinadab, and Malchashua. When the battle intensified against Saul, the archers found him and severely wounded him. 
Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through with it, or these uncircumcised men will come and run me through and torture me. But his armor bearer would not do it because he was terrified. Then Saul took his sword and fell on it. When his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his own sword and died with him. So on that day, Saul died together with his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men. When the men of Israel on the other side of the valley and on the other side of the Jordan saw that Israel's men had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned the cities and fled. So the Philistines came and settled in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons dead on Mount Gilboa. They cut off Saul's head, the third beheading in this book. The first was Dagon, the idol in the temple. The second was Goliath, the Philistine. The third was the king, like all the other nations that the people demanded. They cut off Saul's head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to spread the good news in the temples of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and hung his body on the wall of Bethshan. When the residents of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their brave men set out, journeyed all night, and retrieved the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. When they arrived at Jabesh, they burned the bodies there. Afterward, they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Not a happy ending. We've seen two men, two kings, both under immense pressure. One trusts in himself and turns against God, and his spiritual suicide ends in physical suicide. He's brought low under the mighty hand of God. But another king is ascending. He finds his strength in the Lord, and in the Lord he will be exalted. Which kingdom are you aligned with? In whom do you trust? Are the daily habits of your life helping you strengthen yourself in the Lord, your God? As we come to the Lord's table this morning, we remember and adore Jesus. He trusted in his Father and would not stop finding his strength in God even when the blood poured forth from his veins and the breath was leaving him. And even when his Father turned his face away and Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus continued to trust in the Lord his God. He was crucified. He died. He was buried. But that's not the end of the story for King Jesus. On the third day, he rose. And everyone who's united to Jesus is going to share in his resurrection. And friends, there's no pressure in your life right now. There's no difficulty in your life right now that the resurrection of Jesus will not ultimately relieve. So look to Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. Find your strength in him. And let's prepare to do that as we come to the Lord's table this morning. This is open for everyone who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ and says, you are my strength, you are my savior, you are the one in whom I delight. And I want us to do that now as we stand together and we're going to sing about the strength and the blessing we find in coming to Jesus.